0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast, I'll talk a little bit about The lost hermeneutic that I think is there in the Gospel of John, it's there in the Apostle Paul, it's represented most fully in origin of Alexandria. The point of the lecture is that something has been lost, and this is reflected in both the scholarship surrounding the reception of John, that is that we misperceive John, and this is uh, reflected in what Charles Hill has called a Johannophobia—that that there is a kind of phobia, but it's not on the part of the early church as is projected in this scholarship. So in this lecture, I'll describe this Thing that has been lost and that we need to regain in what is called a spiritual reading of the New Testament. I recently read the book by Charles Hill, and it's made me think about the way that John has been received, and actually the lack of reception, a theological reading of John that was certainly decisive in the early church has been left undeveloped, or in fact has been rejected. In Hill's book, then, he describes what he calls a Jehanophobia. And the idea is that in the early church, in this reading, that the Orthodox church avoided John as it was considered Gnostic, or considered to be associated with the religion of Gnosticism. And Hill just goes through and shows that this is simply not the case. You know, what The consensus of scholarship is that in the very early church that there is a silence surrounding John. And Hill concludes, no, there's not a silence, there's a cacophony. That in fact, John seems to be decisive in the way that the early church read scripture. And he demonstrates that the modern reception of John is in fact the problem. That it's a reflection of maybe the modern theological situation. Maybe the Jehanophobia is more of a modern a perception that John, you know, linking John to Gnosticism, it's there in, in a, a liberalism, in a, a Boltmannianism, but it's just sort of across the board, as Hill demonstrates. And so this Jehanophobia speaks maybe of the modern fear or failure in regard to the book of John. And, of course, he also talks about a johannophilia in the early church, that supposedly the Gnostics liked John, which, again, the early false teaching, in fact, uh, avoided John, attacked John. And it's not until well into the second century that uh, there is an adaption, of John, but that's true of all the Gospels that the Gnostic religion is going to take the Gospels and it reinterpret them, misread them, and so Hill debunks this modern idea, this modern notion of John. As Hill describes it, as is apparent from this review, the phenomenon of Orthodox johannophobia has been for several decades a generally recognized principle among scholars working in johannine studies and in New Testament and early Christian history. It has been endorsed by most of the trusted names in johannine studies, one of whom declares it to be supported by all our evidence. Many of these scholars shaped Johannine studies and New Testament studies in general. In the last half of the 20th century, others are highly qualified and respected historians of early Christianity. Their work is quite naturally relied upon by other Johannine scholars and by specialists in related fields. When one scholar wrote that it is well known, that the Orthodox were unwilling to quote the fourth gospel in the second century, for it was much the preserve of heretics. She was stating what is in the mainstream of the academic community, utterly non-controversial. So that is the consensus, and then Hill's book meticulously refutes this modern consensus, and this is captured in its conclusion. He says, surely one of the most striking results of this investigation, but not of this only, for other studies have been at least tending towards the same conclusion, is that the major use of the fourth gospel among heterodox or Gnostic groups, up until the Valentinians Ptolemy, Heracleon, and Theodotus, is best described as critical or adversarial. This exposes and should correct the tendency of earlier scholarship to assume that any Johannine borrowings or allusions in Gnostic literature are evidence of Gnostic-Johannine affinity or of a common family history. So, he's saying that there was, in fact, antagonism. There was an adversarial or critical relationship between the Gnostics prior to Valentinius and key Gnostic thinkers. But the problem is that Hill's book leaves us wondering how modern scholarship and modern sensibility could make such a blunder. That after Hill's book and the work of Martin Hengel, According to John Baer, the idea that John's gospel was viewed with suspicion by the Orthodox, that should be a dead horse. But the fact that this notion has been given life and continues to survive, it speaks of maybe the strange theological situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, The major influence which John exercised on the early church I'm afraid that it's read out of the history of this modern scholarship that they talk about a silence surrounding John when there is anything but a silence in Hill's estimate. And we can only speculate maybe that this silencing of John is really due to something in the modern period that would silence his particular theological approach. And maybe it's not an overt exclusion of the Johannine literature, but it is an exclusion of John's theological approach, of Paul's theological approach, certainly of the approach given by Origen. Maybe my own experience with this, which is purely anecdotal, but it is a kind of witness to this silencing of John, is in my own teaching of John to undergraduates. That is that, When you, I think, take uh, this seriously, John's theological approach, this stands in contrast to often the flat reading that is given to the synoptics, let alone John. I think this is why often people are eager to teach the synoptics. They know what to do with this. But John requires a very different approach, and students that are attenuated to a kind of flat reading of the life of Christ through this kind of historical, critical approach, they're going to find the theological significance and depth, which are really just unavoidable in John. You know, I I just don't know how you read John apart from this. That there's the echoes of the Hebrew scriptures, which may appear strange to people, but Jesus just says, you know, that destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He talks about I am before Abraham was. The strange yet blatant theological echoes throughout the book surrounding the Exodus, surrounding the miraculous things that happen in the Old Testament that are repeated in John. So that to not link them, you're doing a great disservice to the depth of the miracles of Jesus, or just linking the divine name. You know, is surely that we can't read John and not link his "I am" before Abraham and his consistent use of the "ego e me," the "I am" that is revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This divine name, then is connected to divine characteristics portrayed in the Old Testament. That as Jesus walks on the water, he says, I am. that." And, of course, the idea here is Yahweh of the Old Testament who would trample on the waves, who would calm the seas. There's a cosmic dimension also in John, the, the recreation of the world, of the cosmos. We're not used to talking that way. It's certainly there in Paul in Ephesians and Colossians, but just blatantly so in John. And then the kind of time-bending, apocalyptic nature of John. John is giving us a perspective from the beginning that all of these things are already accomplished, but he's also giving us a perspective that these things were being accomplished through Moses, through, you know, that Jesus actually says this in John also the peculiar theological focus on the death of Christ, the trial, you know, the length of time given to the trial, and the sense that the death and resurrection are really kind of accomplished facts throughout the gospel. When he's talking to Nicodemus, or he's talking to the woman at the well, the living water, the new birth, are things that are already there, that the spiritual activity that really, if we're reading in a pure sequential manner it comes after the resurrection well here it's prior so too the notion of the church you know is really already there in john that here the those who abide in christ this abiding place is the body of christ that there's already already that language and then the, the treatment of evil in john that we have this portrayal of judas uh, maybe in all of the Gospels that Judas is in some way kind of definitive of darkness, or in John he'll talk, he'll spread this out, he'll talk about the Jews. But of course, there is the sense that all of the apostles participate in the sin of Judas. These themes are just strange, maybe, to someone who is used to a flat reading. And it brings out a kind of either an excitement or maybe even a, a kind of defensiveness or even anger on, on the part of some, in my experience. And so the, the johannophobia, which Hill traces among academics, I think it's present not only in academia at a scholarly level, I think it's there at a popular level among ordinary believers. Really, I think what we could project or speculate is that maybe that we then are subject to a kind of Gnostic sensibility or a kind of, if not Gnosticism, a kind of historicism that would reject the spiritual reading that is found in John. And so John is not normally read in the manner that the early church read him and came to read the Hebrew scriptures, that is, in this spiritual manner that, you know, in the types and what is sometimes called allegorically, that Paul will talk about an allegory or, or a type. And so the church has come to blunt this theological or spiritual interpretation. And the flat reading shows itself in many ways. The flat reading of the Logos, you know, this is often depicted as not the word of the cross, not the person of Jesus, but the disincarnate Christ. And so we put in a kind of archetypical understanding, in fact, a very Gnostic sort of reading in which the Logos is reduced to a kind of archetype of the word. And even where it is not fully linked to a Greek philosophy, which is often the case, but even where it's not, it's still a kind of Gnostic emptying out of the Logos. And then the typical heaven and earth duality, in which the earth is denigrated or, you know, in some way heaven is removed or the presence of God is removed. Maybe just the way that we do atonement theory, the abstractions of it, the legalism of it, it reduces to a kind of gnosis and the focus on the individual, which was there in the early Gnostic teaching, a kind of elitism of the saved, you know, an elite knowledge. Uh, Maybe we get that then in our modern focus on the salvation of the individual, the soul going to heaven, the denigration of this world and the flesh. Maybe it all amounts to something very close to Gnosticism. And so my point in this is to say that something has been lost, in modern historical readings. Something that is clearly displayed in John and Paul, what is called an apocalyptic approach, certainly has not been developed, Uh, a kind of historical critical approach, a historicism in reading the Bible and understanding Christ, that I believe thwarts the correct reading. Maybe we just are subject to the false teaching that John is aimed at, maybe a kind of rationalism. This was the image that Henry de Lubac held, his resourcement, his going back to address the thing that he felt had been lost in rationalism as it crept into the church. And he's going to link to a reading like that of Origin of Alexandria. But his point is that rationalism makes the mystery of the faith something to be studied more than something to be believed and experienced. And so in de Lubach's description, rationalism translates into a form of historicism in which history becomes the primary concern in understanding Christ, which in the historical critical method, you know, the exegetes, read the Bible in such a way that, as de Lubach describes it, it's reduced to the historical phenomena and therefore completely conditioned by its historical setting. Uh, It cuts into the the study of certainly the spiritual meaning of Scripture or developing the kind of understanding that will be developed in origin and the early church. And Lubach is going to return to origin as a kind of example of the development of this Certainly it's a Johannine but also a Pauline understanding. De Lubach, you know, thinks that the historical critical method sanitized theology of uh, the church's traditional way of reading scripture, certainly in my own seminary experience and Bible college experience, that the historical critical method was simply what we were inundated with and in the notion of reading allegorically or, or even reading John, I think, in the way that it almost demands to be read, was in some way prevented by the historical critical method that we're concerned with, getting the intent of the original author rather than uh, getting the intent of a divine author. And so it it is historicism that seems to have flattened a theological reading of John. Maybe this is the characteristic, though N.T. Wright is sometimes hard to classify. N.T. Wright certainly appreciates Paul's apocalyptic reading. And yet Wright himself is subject to more of a historical reading that, you know, we read the New Testament in light of the Old and that previous history of the Jews of Israel is primary for right. And so he has to read it sequentially with one part of history, the part concerning the Jews. In, in a sense, takes dominance over the part occupied by Christ so that we read Christ in light of the law, in light of Judaism rather than the other way around everything becomes subject to this unfolding of history, which is certainly not the development that is there in the New Testament. You know, in the opening of John, in the epistles of Paul, there is a bending and looping of time that uh, we can talk about the birthing of Christ. you know, This is there in Hippolytus. It's there in Revelation that the image of the church as bringing forth Christ into the world, it's thematic in Scripture that there is a sense in which that's always what has been happening. And so Scripture is not written simply to inform us about events that happened in the past, but it's written for us, as Paul says, now these things happened to them as a type, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Here he folds all things into the now. That is, the history of the Jews is written down for us, and now he depicts the end of the ages. Or in John, Jesus says, Moses wrote of me. In Romans, Paul explains to Gentile Roman Christians, of course, that he's probably writing in the 40s or 50s, that you died to the law through the body of Christ. They didn't see his death, but there is a participation that is presumed in the New Testament that today we participate in that past event. Still, we do. Uh, Certainly there in Romans 6 that Paul speaks of dying and rising with Christ and we're united with him, that is, we're joined with him. And actually a lot of theological misreading takes its departure from this, I think, a misreading of what it means to be joined with Christ or what it means to be baptized. It's not like his death. It's not like his resurrection. Paul's saying it actually is a participation. We have died with Christ. And so Paul speaks of Christians That we are inscribed into Christ's times. And this really, that's the basis, you know, in chapter 6 of Romans for his instruction to the Christians that they're to consider themselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And so the death he died, we die to sin once for all. And the life that Christ lives, we live to God. And so this is why Paul can write about, you know, the result of the premise, well, if Christ has not been raised, this means that your faith is futile. That is, that your present tense experience is going to be changed up by a past event, and likewise, uh, it would be quite different if that past event were not the case. And so Paul's present is defined by Christ's past. Himself, when he says, "I have been crucified with Christ," or when he says to the Colossians that with Christ you have died, you were buried with him in baptism, which means that at mo- a moment in their past, their baptism, it is a participation. This is the premise in Colossians, in Romans, uh, in Galatians, and so there is a sense in which the past of Christ. It's certainly a past that is unfolding or available in the present, but of course it's also there in the future for Christians. Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians 4.14, the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. That is, the event of Christ's resurrection in the past is the resurrection that we participate in now, but it's, this past resurrection is also going to be part of our future resurrection, that we will be raised with him. Same thing there in Romans 6, that our baptism is a joining in, and that joining is in the process of being completed. It was completed in him, it is being completed now in us, and it will be completed in the future. In Ephesians 2, six, it says that God raised us up with him. Colossians says you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God. And the point being that this is, in and of itself, we may be used to hearing this in the language of the New Testament, but we need to recognize that what is happening is this bending of time and history around Christ. And they're going to do this same thing in their reading of, the old testament and so in first corinthians paul says that our ancestors drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was christ christ himself was present with the jews on their wilderness journey a few verses later paul alludes to numbers that the corinthians should not put christ to the test as the Jews did in the wilderness, as if it is Christ that they were testing. Of course, the imagery of predestination is there uh, throughout the New Testament, that just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians, all things have been created through him and to him in Colossians, he is before all things, he is the beginning. The same thing in John, the Logos of the Word in the beginning. I don't think we should read this beginning as the beginning of time in the sense of a sequence, but here is the source. And so what the Word is, the Logos, the He here, is the Jesus that we know, as Jesus himself will say in John 8.58, before Abraham was, I am. This is a tortured sentence to say because the past is one in which Christ is present now and who he is now is there in the past. As John 12, 39 to 41 says uh, uh, that Isaiah was talking about Jesus he, for this reason. They could not believe he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and and be converted, and I heal them. And then John puts the note, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him, that Isaiah saw Christ. Time bends around Christ. Old Testament history bends around Christ. Uh, The past story of Christ is the present, and the past is bound up, with Christ presently, so that there is the sense that Jesus is an eternal fact about God, that the cross is an eternal fact about God, that the birth of Christ is an ongoing event in the church. The Christ born in the middle of history is also there, existing before all things, but also existing in Israel's wilderness wanderings, bound up with the life Paul says, of the eternal God in Romans sixteen twenty six. So the temporal Jesus is the eternal God. Not all of God, not all of who he is, but I think we should not hesitate to connect the incarnation with the reality of, of who God is. And that's the way the fathers, uh, the apostles of the church, in fact, they kind of ignore historical context In their reading of the Bible, it's all about Christ. It's not an ongoing narrative leading up to Christ, but it's already speaking about Christ in his passion. And so Christ himself is the center of the hermeneutic. So it's not a reading as a historical narrative from the Old Testament to the New Testament in sequence to, to read it that way or to confine it to that understanding as Rowan Williams has put it, that his incarnation is simply one episode in the biography of God. But the entire Bible, the story of Jesus, is about Christ, and it's all about God. As Origen will put it, the humanity of Jesus became one with the Word and one with God. We must dare say that the goodness of Christ appeared greater and more divine, and truly in accordance with the image of the Father, when He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, then had He considered being equal to God robbery, and had not been willing to become a servant for the salvation of the world. That is, this kenotic self-emptying on the cross. This supreme moment of weakness is the supreme moment or manifestation of the power of God. And this is not a passing event simply in history, but this is an event in who God is. That here is the revelation of true divinity. Here is the processions of the Spirit through the Son that it's being witnessed in history. And so in this depiction, the cross, the life of Jesus, these are eternal truths about God, not just in one episode in the life of God, that the eternal has entered into history so that eternity opens up in time that God doesn't experience time the way we do. You know, this is the whole problem with the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the discussion on you know, Robert Jensen and others that about the problem with imagining the processions of the Trinity apart from the reality of the person of Christ, uh, of the person of Jesus. The eternal God has entered into history so that who God is is opened up to us in time in history, we have access to God, the Immanent Trinity, is the Economic Trinity, and the Economic Trinity is the Immanent Trinity, and so we have access to God in His Eternality. Now, that's not to in any way reduce God, or even to say that we have access to all of who God is. That there, you know, we're not eliminating the mystery. But the mystery of God is one that we enter into. It's not withheld from us because of, of our existence in time, because eternity in the life story of Jesus has entered into time. This is the way that Karl Barth puts it. Christ lives in his time, and while it does not cease to be his time, and the times of other men do not cease to be their times, his time acquires, in relation to their times, the character of God's time, of eternity, in which present, past, and future are simultaneous. Thus, Jesus not only lives in his own time, but as he lives in his own time, and as there are many other times, both before and after him, he is the Lord of time. So maybe the prime representative of this in the New Testament is John, but maybe the prime representative of a kind of Johannine theological pr- approach, which is going to characterize the early church, is that of Origin of Alexandria. The Origin seems to be picking this up and developing it. Whether we agree with all the details in Origin, the mode of his spiritual reading is one that is there, you know, in the Cappadocian Fathers across the board in the early church, that Eusebius calls him the greatest Christian theologian. Gregory of Nyssa considers Origen his theological master, as does Gregory of Nazianzus. According to David Bentley Hart, it is Origen and Origen's reading of the Bible that exercises the key influence on the early church. He says, After Paul, there is no single Christian figure to whom the whole tradition is more indebted. It was Origen who taught the church how to read Scripture as a living mirror of Christ, who evolved the principles of later Trinitarian theology and Christology, who majestically set the standard for Christian apologetics who produced the first and richest expositions of contemplative spirituality, and who simply said, laid the foundation of the whole edifice of developed Christian thought. John Baer talks about John the Apostle being the, the gospel, being the origin of theology, and in this, Hart, picks up on Origen that he is the founding figure, or a key figure certainly, in the founding of early church theology. But of course the problem is, and this is what Hart points out, is that Origen is declared a heretic both east and west and treated disgracefully by both the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. And so when de Lubac, you know, begins his resourcement theology, it's precisely to origin that he turns, that he finds there a seminal figure who had a robust and orthodox understanding of Scripture that was adopted by the, the early church. And de Lubac shows in his writings that he believed Origen was following Paul's example of finding spiritual meaning in the Old Testament in events that are actually about Christ. And so both Origen and Lubach took the position that understanding the totality of Scripture was dependent on understanding Christ as the key, the one who holds it together, the hermeneutical key, that unlocked the mysteries of God. Origen credits this both to Paul and to John. Uh, he'll refer to them both as the princes of the New Testament. He refers to John as the high priest of the religion of the Logos, as it's John that attains you know, to the spiritual vision. Origen refers to Revelation 14.6 as inspiring his understanding of the spiritual reading And his reading of John then will provide several examples of this in his commentary on John. He refers to the crossings of the Jordan as a type of baptism, to the Paschal Lamb as a type of the crucified Christ, to the tabernacle and the temple as types of Christ. And in his discussion of John 2.13, you know, he brings in the Passover. He references uh, Jesus' words in John 6.53 to eating uh, his flesh and blood. Well, you know, he references 1 Corinthians, he references Exodus. But, of course, the point is that Origen finds there then the unfolding of and the meaning of this history in Exodus. And so Origen finds Jesus Christ in the law and the prophets. It's Christ that is the center of every book, you know, for him in his exegetical work. He sees the pattern in a theological interpretation inspired by John that would become common in the early church. And Origen speaks of John as attaining the goal of the Gospels. He says we find the goal in John in. Talking about the Word in the beginning, the Word being God. He says that it's John that reserves, you know, that talks about the one who leaned on Jesus' breast as having the greater and more perfect expressions concerning Jesus. For none of the other Gospels manifested as fully the divinity as John when he says, I am the light of the world, in John. Or when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, I am the resurrection, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, all in the gospel. And then in the apocalypse, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And so Origen pictures all Christians entering into the peculiar experience of John, or they should enter this experience. He says we might dare say then that the gospels, are the first fruits of all scriptures, but that the first fruits of the gospels is that according to John, and then he goes on to say, whose meaning no one can understand who has not also leaned on Jesus' breast, nor received Mary from Jesus to be his mother also. But he who would be another John must also become such as John, to be shown to be Jesus, so to speak. For if Mary had no son except Jesus, and he's referencing here the moment at the cross when Jesus says to John, here is your mother, and a woman, here is your son, in a sense that John becomes, stands in the place of Jesus. Jesus says to his mother, behold your son, and not, behold this man also is your son. He's saying, this is Jesus whom you bore. For indeed, everyone who has been perfected no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And since Christ lives in him, it is said of him to Mary, Behold your son, the Christ. Origen goes on to say the one who would understand it must have leaned on Jesus' breast. He must have in some sense become Jesus, for Mary had only one son. Origen finds to be in harmony with Paul's statement. That the one who has been perfected no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And so, the words of John's gospel he talks about there's the, the physical sense, you know, the literal sense, as language can be read or heard by anyone. In having the mind of Christ, that we may know the things that are given us by God. There is this spiritual sense. And Origen says this higher level of insight attained by the spirit-led exegete, this is what he means by the spiritual gospel. He thinks that John alludes to it in Revelation, the spiritual gospel, he thinks, is the reality of which Christ's acts were symbols. It's the secrets hidden in the mysteries of Christ's words. And so Origen will talk about, he says, well, there's two Gospels. You know, there's one that's perceptible to the senses, the Gospel consisting of the language, which tells of the teaching, the activities of Jesus. We can all read this. But if we leave it there, we're going to miss the spiritual Gospel. He says the task of the exegete is to translate the Gospel perceptible to the senses into the spiritual Gospel. And so there is a sense in which it is correct to say that Origen saw the whole physical world as a metaphor for spiritual realities. That is, God created the visible world in such a way that each thing in it has an image of something eternal so that human reason can lift itself to the heavenly world by contemplating the objects in the physical world. He quotes Paul here. Paul teaches us, that the invisible things of God are understood by means of things that are visible, and that the things that are not seen are beheld through their relationship and likeness to things seen. He thus shows that this visible world, teaches us about that which is invisible, and that this earthly seeing contains certain patterns of things heavenly. Thus it is possible for us to mount up from things below to things above, and to perceive and understand from the things we see on earth the things that belong to heaven. And perhaps even as God made man in his own image and likeness, So also did he create the other creatures after the likeness of some other heavenly patterns. And perhaps the correspondence between all things on earth and their celestial prototypes goes so far that even the grain of mustard seed, which is the least of all seeds, has something in heaven whose image and likeness it bears. And of course, clearly he's playing off the understanding that one whose faith is as small as a grain of mustard seed, that here is an example of this very typology or this very sensibility that the physical world is lit up with a meaning, a depth of meaning that points us to the invisible world. I was a little surprised in reading this that it's uh, Ronald Hine who is actually at 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 the writing of this at Emmanuel School of Religion, who translates Origen's commentary on John and then provides an introduction to the book. And he says, perhaps no book of the Bible, certainly none of the New Testament, was so suited to Origen's exegetical approach as the Gospel of John. And in his commentary on the Gospel of John, Heinz says, we have the greatest exegetical work of the early church. And so, as Hill talks about the failure of Johannine scholarship, and just kind of, you know, the the failure of this thing is uh, a meta-failure. It's just, as Hill describes it, that people just say, well, all people of understanding have this notion of uh, early Johannaphobia, that he just shows is fabricated. And it seems to be the manifestation of a broader failure of appreciation of the theological focus of John. That is, that the orthodoxy that John preserves in combating that early protognostic teaching in some way is lost, that we read from the perspective not of the orthodox now, who would embrace the spiritual and theological reading of John and Paul. But could it be that we read the gospel then, having flattened it out, from more of a position of a kind of Gnostic understanding? And so what is lost to us in the critical reception of Johannine literature in modern scholarship? And maybe just in the flat historical reading of both John and Paul, is the richness of the theological program that is inspired by both of them, by John certainly, and passed along by Origen. And so apart from the recovery, this was de Lubach's point, apart from a resourcement, a recovery of this sort of spiritual reading, Maybe it's captured in an apocalyptic reading. I'm not sure that deliverance from modern Gnosticism, the modern kind of sickness, is a possibility apart from entering into then this spiritual understanding, this spiritual experience. Displayed in origin, detailed in John and Paul, and then typified then in the New Testament. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to go on social media and like us. Point others then to what we're doing here at Forging Plowshares. Uh, We are offering classes right now. We're in the midst of the class on the Gospel of John. We run about three or four classes a year, so make sure and inquire about our classes So if you'd like to become involved in Forging Plowshares, if you'd like to learn more about this ministry, contact me personally or contact us through Forging Plowshares. You can contact me at uh, paulv.haxton at gmail.com or you can uh, contact us through the uh, website. But make sure and like us on social media.
0: dot org